Good afternoon to our listeners. This is Jonathan Harris. My name is Andrew Gilmore. Coming to you live for the second episode of season two of Law and Society Talk, brought to you by the members of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell with the generous space and airtime of cornellradio.com. I am Jonathan Harris, co-editor-in-chief and a senior in the ILR school. And with me here today is Andrew, one of our staff writers who is also a senior and is in the School of Arts and Sciences. Today, we will discuss a number of issues the attack on the Capitol this Wednesday during the certification of the state's electors, the implications of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock's victories in the Georgia special and runoff Senate elections, and a recent Supreme Court decision that dealt a blow to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's power to enact regulations in the name of public health. This podcast is meant solely for the purposes of discourse and discussion and should not be construed to be any form of legal advice or counsel. We thank you for tuning in and look forward to getting underway this afternoon after this short break. Well, Andrew, 2021 has certainly gotten off to an interesting start. What do you say we kick today's episode off with the attack on the Capitol this past Wednesday? Yeah, I think that sounds great. We made it uh, six days. Yes, we did. So uh, as you as you all probably know, President Trump and some of his colleagues in the United States House of Representatives have been filing lawsuit after lawsuit in federal court and state court trying to overturn the election in many of the swing states uh, that Joe Biden won on his path to 270 electoral votes in the presidency. Uh, House member Louie Gohmert from Texas actually filed a lawsuit saying that in the uh, all but ceremonial certification of the electors in, in a joint session of Congress on January 6th, that Vice President Pence, who presides over the Senate and the House in the joint session, had the power to unilaterally overturn the certification of the electors. So this, this Wednesday, January 6th, when the, the House and the Senate were to meet in this joint session, the day started off with Vice President Pence telling President Trump that uh, he did not have the power as vice president to overturn the certification of the electors. This is in line with uh, what the court said in uh, throwing out Gohmert's, uh lawsuit. Um, Trump reportedly, according to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal and others, chastised Vice President Pence for being soft and left for his speech at the Ellipses uh, right in Washington, D.C. During his 70 minute long speech or rant or whatever you want to call it, Trump uh, told his supporters that they would together march down Pennsylvania to the Capitol. He said in reference to marching on the Capitol, quote, you will never take back our country with weakness. He was joined by speakers such as his son, Donald Jr., uh, his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who called for a, quote, trial by combat against Democrats. Trump repeatedly urged his supporters to see the routine certification of electors as an illegal affront against them all. Uh, his protesters did march down to the Capitol along Pennsylvania Avenue, although notably not with President Trump. He did not join them. He returned to the White House to watch them on TV, uh, going against his word. Uh, what was protests turned to riots and even insurrection. The mob breached the Capitol. They smashed the glass on windows and doors, 
climbed through the windows, overpowered and assaulted Capitol Police. They broke into, vandalized and stole from congressional offices. They broke into the House chamber where Capitol Police uh, actually barricaded the door with a large chest. Um, and then as they moved their way across the Capitol building, uh, one woman, one rioter was, was unfortunately shot and killed. Her name was Ashley Babbitt. She was a United States Air Force veteran. Um, these rioters sat in the presiding officer's chair in the House chamber. They stole mail and Speaker Pelosi's gavel. They destroyed the Senate parliamentarian's office. They climbed along the walls of the House chamber. Uh, they actually uh, ended up killing a Capitol Police officer named Brian Sicknick. I believe they uh, hit him over the head with the fire extinguisher. Uh, all in all, it was a, a terrible day for this country. Uh, unfortunately to me and, and many others, not as shocking, not as unpredictable as we would have thought. This seems to be the culmination of four tenuous years of the Trump presidency. Uh, Andrew, do you have any thoughts on what this means for our democracy, what it means for our country, for our political system, who might be at fault? What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to unpack here. I think you did a, a great job explaining the core of, of what went on uh, this past Wednesday. Um, you know, I think that first and foremost, this is really about electoral integrity. Um, you know, whether you're conservative, Democrat, uh, you know, whatever, who you voted for, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, the ability to, to vote in this country, the ability to have elections, free and fair elections, depends on electoral integrity. Um, you know, I personally believe that any, you know, loser in an election has a right, um, and as the Wall Street Journal said, maybe even an obligation to question the results of the election in the pathways provided. Um, Mr. Trump has certainly done that. He has, you know, gone down every legal pathway he can to try and, uh, you know, challenge the results. And he ran out of options. You know, I think the statistic you gave me before was, you know, all but maybe one of his 60 um, motions in court were dismissed. Um, you know, so we have an independent route for um, questioning, you know, electoral results in this country. And I'd say that, that President Trump, you know, he used that to the fullest extent that he could and he ran out of options and he had to stop there, but he didn't. Um, and, and I think that we are now seeing the repercussions of that, of continuously telling your supporters who are plentiful, you know, that you won despite the court results, despite the lack of hard evidence, you won and you should be out there protesting. You should be inciting, you know, um, riots on our governmental institutions. So your original question is, what does this mean for this country? I think it means a lot. I think it's um, concerning at first. Um, and I think there need to be outcomes. You know, so what we've seen so far, just in the, in the coming days, we've seen widespread calls for President Trump to step down um, on his own accord. We've seen uh, House Democrats promise to present articles of impeachment um, this upcoming Monday. 
if he doesn't step down. We've heard chatter that um, some individuals in Mr. Trump's cabinet are, are talking about invoking the 25th Amendment, um, which seems unlikely at the current moment because Vice President Pence um, does not seem to be favorable of that, of that uh, action. So we'll see what happens. But there's a lot of options right now on the table. Um, the Department of Justice, I think, this morning just said they're looking into potential criminal charges against Mr. Trump. You know, private companies like Twitter, Facebook, um, and a wide variety of social media companies have removed or temporarily banned Mr. Trump's account. So we've seen a lot unfold over the last coming days. So that's kind of the, the broad view of what we have right now. Um, do you have any, you know, what do you think is going to happen, I guess, like from those options? What do you think is most likely? Yeah, so I think you're you're absolutely right in your analysis of the 25th Amendment. You actually, as we've seen over the past couple of days, uh, Elaine Chow, the the Secretary of Transportation, also uh, Mitch McConnell's wife, said that she was going to resign her post as the Cabinet Secretary. Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, said that she would resign. Uh, in my opinion, you know, you don't you don't get to come along for the ride for four years and then you know. Uh, Run, run away kind of like a rat off of a sinking ship in the past, in, in the last 13 days. I, I think it's dishonest. Like this is the bridge too far for them. In my opinion, there's been many, many, many more instances of gross violations of norms, of, of human rights even, um, where they had the opportunity to step down. They had the opportunity to speak out and they didn't. And so you pointed out that Vice President Pence is against the invocation of the 25th Amendment. So I think that won't happen. But actually, there is uh, a couple articles of impeachment that House Democrats are, are going to bring to the floor in their pro forma session on Monday. Uh, one of them, uh, I think, authored by Jamie Raskin, who's actually my representative here in Maryland. Uh, he'll, he'll, it has about 180 co-sponsors of the 220 member Democratic caucus. I think it's very, very likely that that passes the House and that passes the House quickly. Um, I don't know when or if. Actually, you know what? Mitch McConnell, I believe, is obligated to bring those articles to the floor. I think it's a question more so of when he brings them to the floor. But if it gets to the Senate floor, those that impeachment article being incredibly interesting to see what happens there. Now, I, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, yeah. You pointed out that, you know, presidential candidates, when they lose, or even uh, senatorial House candidates, they lose, uh, they, they absolutely have the right to challenge the results of the election. Um, but it seems to me and to many others that what we've seen over the past month, uh, two months from Donald Trump has been uh, baseless conspiratorial claims that from him and his lawyers that, you know, everything from the voting machines were created by a company that uh, comprised a conspiracy between Hugo Chavez and the, the Democratic Party to right. switch votes and the machines themselves are, are manufactured to switch votes. And so I'm wondering if you think that there is a line where, uh, the candidate has gone too far in, in challenging the elections because it, it seems that, you know, President Trump and his supporters really whipped his, whipped these 
protesters, rioters into a frenzy. And, you know, it's a shock to me that there wasn't more damage done. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think you bring up a lot of good points. They're, I think they're incredibly valid. Um, right. So I think there's a lot going on here. Right. So at first you have the, the candidates right for themselves as someone trying to run for office to question the results of an election. And, you know, that's fine. There's the avenues to do so. You know, now we're talking about someone who has a incredibly wide, um, you know, focused microphone essentially able to communicate very easily before yesterday through social media and through his speeches and various platforms to millions of people. Um, what you're saying are conspiratorial, you know, ideas and maybe they are, um, maybe they aren't. I think that pushing false narratives in an election situation is incredibly damaging to electoral integrity unless it's backed up by evidence. So what I would say where I stand on this um, especially as someone who, you know, you know, you know, most people who know me know is, leans more conservative. You know, as I've said, I don't think this is about conservative or liberal. Um, I think this is about electoral integrity. And so when you have the president pushing these narratives that haven't been backed up with evidence, yeah, I do. I think that's a line and I think that's harmful. But I also understand that we live in an incredibly large and diverse country with many different voting mechanisms and election rules all over the country. So if we were to grant for a second that there was some kind of electoral fraud in some isolated places, it may not be so clear that evidence would come out within days or hours or even within weeks. So what I would say is that we've kind of created this terrible perfect storm where you have the president saying you know repeatedly all of these things which are probably baseless probably have nothing to them and thus a lot of people in the polity have have latched onto them obviously as we've seen on on wednesday you know um the extreme end of that but even still there's a lot of people out there who believe this was a fraudulent election and so i think at this point the best thing we can do is is to not necessarily keep calling those people conspirators, because it, it only feeds the, the fire. I think that we ought to continue the hunt and continue to prove that the election wasn't fraudulent and that the election, you know, was not a conspiracy of top-down authority figures who needed Joe Biden in office. Um, and so I think it's this balancing act between acknowledging that what the president is doing right now is, is egregious um, and acknowledging that simply telling people who to them are convinced that there was deep electoral fraud. Telling them they're conspirators isn't necessarily going to be the best way to heal the country. Well, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, telling, telling these people marching on the Capitol that they're conspirators, that's not gonna heal the country, right? But doesn't the culpability lie with, the culpability and the responsibility to change, to be better, it must lie with Trump, you know, Sidney Powell, Pence, Giuliani. Uh, yeah, they need Josh. to be. What I think they needed is, is to have been making their claims, not with the desire to incite their supporters, but making their claims as the evidence came in. That's what the uh, that's what the conservative person, not in a political sense, would have done. They would have acknowledged that what they're dealing with is very, you know, sensitive. It's sensitive to bring up claims of election fraud. And what they should have done is when they found any evidence, if they did, they should have presented that specific evidence rather than making claims that they hadn't yet proven. 
and probably right. won't ever prove. So I agree with you there 100%. But they did make those claims, right? And I, Mark Elias, who's one of the, the best known Democratic uh, voting rights and election uh, lawyers in the country, he, he's been keeping a running tally of President Trump and his campaign and his affiliates, their, their lawsuits and their claims. And he, his count right now, I believe, is that the Trump campaign is one in 60 in post-election lawsuits. We've seen every court from uh, state to federal district to circuit to even the Supreme Court outright reject these claims of uh, election fraud. And so- yeah. What do we do in the situation yeah. where these claims have been backed by little evidence, except for a wildly, maybe somewhat compelling narrative, but they've been thrown out by every serious person who's seen them, including yeah. roughly 60 courts around the country? Surely. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And, and what I was saying before was not defending what they've been doing. I acknowledge that they've been making those baseless claims. That's what I think their fault in this situation is, is their incitement. And, and the continuing of, of claims that haven't been backed up and have been specifically rejected in dozens of courts. So I agree with you there. Um, I do think that, you know, courts operate in a, in a court-like fashion. And while there's great evidence there to show that in pretty much every case it's been dismissed, I don't think there's any harm in continuing to search and, and prove that the election wasn't fraudulent. Um, and that's really where I stand right now. That's, that's all I'm saying. Um, I'm not in any way defending the, the claims that they've been pushing, and I'm in no way defending the incitement that they have caused. Um, but I am defending, one, the, the legal you know, right to question an election, which we've already discussed, and two, the public interest currently in continuing to investigate what would take a long, long time to reach the true conclusion of in order to continue to provide the public with evidence that this election wasn't fraudulent. And I think that auditing our elections is certainly something that we need to do. But the issue that I have here is the constant, continuous, and unfailing uh, parroting of these false and without evidence claims from the president and his affiliates that these wild theories are fact and that they altered the election to give Joe Biden the presidency. Um, and they led to what we saw Wednesday, a sacking of the Capitol, three, four rioters dead and a Capitol police officer dead. It is these baseless claims that led to the horror that we saw Wednesday. And so while our elections are sacred and we certainly need to make sure that they're carried out fair, fairly. Um, this was way too far. Absolutely, way yeah. too far. This was a poisoning of the uh, American polity like on other. Sure. Although, so go ahead, sorry. All I was going to say, I don't mean to cut you off, all I was going to say is that, um, you know, so it's, it's clear that the House is going to introduce these articles of impeachment, going back to, you know, what this means for Trump and what it should mean for him. Um, I, I remember I was reading something yesterday about one senator, I forget who, who was the first um, you know, Republican senator to say that they would, they would back um, impeachment in the yeah, Senate. Yeah, Josh Hawley. 
what do you think about um, what do you think about the chances of of impeachment in or conviction into um, in the Senate? Oh, uh, you know, I think I just misspoke there. Sorry, I, it was not Josh Hawley who who said he would back impeachment. Certainly not. He was the first to back the uh, objections to the electors being certified. Um, the chances in the Senate, you know, I think to start off, it's unlikely that they get the impeachment trial done before January 20th. We're 11 days away from uh, Joe Biden being inaugurated as uh, the 46th president of the United States. So I think it's unlikely that the Senate gets this done. Okay. But, you know, if they were you have to look at the the reality of the situation, which is you need 67 senators, I believe, to to convict in an impeachment trial. Uh, the Democrats have, I think it's 47 or 48 now that Mark Kelly from Arizona has been sworn in. Um, I think there's a number of Republican senators likely to, to sign on to convict. We know Mitt Romney voted to convict in the last impeachment trial. I think it's likely based off of his comments and his fury with Trump that he does that again. Uh, Lisa Murkowski has said, the senator from Alaska in the past few days, that she blames Trump for this, that he incited, and that she's reconsidering her future in the Republican Party. I think it's likely that she would. Uh, I think Susan Collins, for her political life, although she just won re-election, uh, would probably have to vote for impeachment after she said in the last impeachment trial that she would vote against conviction because Trump, she thought Trump had learned his lesson. Clearly he didn't. Um, but other than that, I think there's not many others who would vote to convict. Um, you know, I did want to point out that many of us have been saying since the start of Donald Trump's campaign that his, his words and his actions were dangerous and the way with which he spread fury through his supporters was dangerous. But I, I, I wanted to read you a couple quotes from some unlikely figures um, who actually agreed. Uh, so this quote is from Senator Ted Cruz, the Republican from Texas, who's actually uh, jumped to the right of Josh Hawley and wanted to object to the electors. Uh, he said back in 2015, quote, I think a campaign bears responsibility for creating an environment. When a candidate urges supporters to engage in physical violence, to punch people in the face, the predictable consequence of that is that it escalates. Marco Rubio, who's also come to Trump's backing, said in 2016, when he was running against Trump, there's only one presidential candidate who has violence at their events. He warned that, quote, words have consequences and that Trump was responsible for his supporters' behavior. Rick Perry gave a speech uh, nearly likening Trump to a third world strongman. So I, you know, this is not shocking to a lot of us that this happened. And so I think the question that we have to turn to is how we make sure that it never, ever, ever happens again and holding the people that were responsible accountable. Sure. But I think yeah. uh, that may be a longer conversation than, than we have time for today. What do you say we move to uh, 
the elections for the Senate in Georgia. I think we definitely should. I think just the last thing I'd like to say on this, just uh, because I think we, we kind of skipped over it um, real quickly, just for our listeners who maybe are mm-hmm. wondering why it's really even of importance, you know, if Trump were to be impeached and convicted, uh, you know, right, he only has 11 days left in office. Why does this even matter? And you correct me if I'm wrong, but if he were impeached and convicted, he wouldn't be able to run for federal office again, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And there's a lot of talk right now that, you know, in the next election that he would try to rally up his supporters once again and, and make another uh, bid for office. So so this could be very consequential, actually. Oh, absolutely. I think he also loses his uh, Secret Service protection detail for life. He loses the two hundred thousand dollar pension that he certainly doesn't need that comes from taxpayers. He also, I believe, loses the uh, $1 million stipend that former presidents get for travel uh, per year. So, uh, you know, seems like a good outcome to me. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, so, I just wanted to add that in. Yeah. Let's move on to uh, Georgia. Um, this past week, just before uh, and then during the, the attack on the Capitol, John Ossoff, the Democrat, and Raphael Warnock, also the Democrat, Gave the Senate's gave the Democrats in the Senate a, a majority. Uh, they brought it to a 50-50 tie, but Vice President Kamala Harris will be able to break that tie. John Ossoff unseated the incumbent David Perdue in a runoff election after Perdue was unable to eclipse the 50% mark needed to escape a runoff in the November election. Warnock unseated the incumbent Kelly Leffler, who uh, he beat in a special election. Um, Leffler was appointed to her seat by Governor Brian Kemp. I think it was two or three years back. Uh, this has massive implications for the legislative process, for the judiciary, um, and for the future of our of our politics. Andrew, you want to give give a couple of thoughts? What do you or what are the biggest implications that you see because of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first things, right? I mean, first of all, you know, we know how Congress works. There's two chambers. You need joint agreement between these chambers. If one chamber is led by one party and the other still has a majority from the other party, you know, lawmaking is going to be much more difficult. Um, you know, now we're talking two chambers of Congress that are dominated by you know, the Democratic Party, and you're talking about a president who is of the Democratic Party, um, you know, from simple analysis, you would be able to figure out that it seems like more policy will be able to be implemented um, during Biden's um, presidency. And in terms of what specifically we can expect, I'm not sure where it would kind of change, you know, what Will they change their focus of, of the main policy perspectives now, now that they'll have more power? Um, or will they kind of just focus on, you know, maintaining and strengthening the policies that they had hoped to get accomplished once, um, you know, January 20th comes around and Joe Biden's in office? I'm honestly not sure. Um, but does this mean that there is just free reign and you know, the Democratic Party can go and pass whatever they'd like. Surely not, right? We still have a lot of um, institutional barriers. Um, for example, mm-hmm. just one in the Senate, right? We're talking about 
the filibuster um, and having a simple majority in the Senate is not the same as having a simple majority in the House of Representatives. Um, so do you think there's going to be any specific policies that they're going to suddenly say, hey, you know, we can do this now. We, we weren't looking into this, but now we're going to. Uh, so I, I don't think that uh, there are policies that, you know, weren't high up on the list that they're now suddenly vaulting to the top of the list. I think first and foremost, what this means in terms of the legislative process is that uh, Joe Biden and the admin Biden administration will be able to pass uh, larger aid packages uh, in terms of COVID aid um, than they would have been able to if McConnell was the majority leader. I think that's a fantastic thing in terms of stimulus payments, uh, eviction moratoriums, uh, re-implementing the Paycheck Protection Program and economic injury disaster loans for small businesses. Um, I think this is really going to be great for the economy um, in terms of juicing consumer spending. Um, and I think that it also is, is great for the Democrats in a couple other senses, which is they now control committees uh, and they also control confirmations. So what we saw in the past couple of days was Joe Biden appointed Merrick Garland, who previously held a seat on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and who Barack Obama uh, nominated for the Supreme Court, but who never got a hearing. Uh, Joe Biden nominated Merrick Garland for his attorney general to lead the, the Department of Justice. So that opens up a, a seat on the D.C. Circuit. And I think that is a fantastic opportunity for, for Joe Biden to uh, nominate and then have confirmed a young um, person of color, hopefully a, uh, a woman, into a very, very powerful court of appeals. I also think it means that uh, it's possible Justice Breyer has just started looking into retirement. Uh, possible that he, you know, starts looking for beach houses somewhere warm and sunny. Um, another opportunity for Biden to nominate and have confirmed another young liberal, likely another person of color, which is great. More, the more different backgrounds, the better. Um, but this also means that Democrats control the bu budget re reconciliation process. Um, and that will be big also in terms of COVID aid. Um, how do you think this affects uh, Republicans in the long term? Uh, in terms of their legislating ability. I know Lisa Murkowski said that she was reconsidering her future with the Republican Party. So if she starts caucusing with Democrats, that really switches things up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, you know, obviously this is not the only thing that's going to change the, the Republican Party, obviously. Um, you know, what we talked about before will will divide the Republican Party the last four years, we'll divide the Republican Party how to move forward, we'll divide it. Um, you know, I, I think that we'll have to see what, uh, what, their, what their route is. Um, you know, how will this impact the midterm elections? That'll be interesting. We can expect to see more, you know, fast-paced policy coming out of Congress under the Biden administration, um, will that drive more conservatives to, to vote in the midterms than if um, there was a little more of a gridlocky situation in Congress and less policy was getting out? You know, it's kind of up to guessing. If I had to personally take a guess, um, 
I think the Republicans are going to have to realign themselves, um, kind of step away from this populist Republican Party that they have evolved into over the last four years and redefine themselves as conservatives um, in that name and with that goal. So we'll just have to see. You think that the, the Republican Party steps away from the energetic base of Trump voters that we've seen have really controlled a lot of the past four years for Republicans? You know, uh, there have been a lot of House members and, and, and senators who've been elected using that base to drive support. Um, Josh Hawley, big example of that. Marjorie Green Taylor, the known uh, <laughs> QAnon supporter down in Georgia, she's now in the House. So how likely do you really think a realignment is for the Republicans? Or do the, I guess you could call them business conservatives, the Murkowskis, Romneys, Collins, do you think they kind of split from the farther right section of the party? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting question, right? It's It comes down, in my opinion, to, to, to a notion of turnout right? Because the fear really wouldn't be in a realignment like that. The fear wouldn't be that Trump's base is going to suddenly switch parties, obviously. The fear is that they're not as um, active and they're not as out to vote as they have been in waves over the last four years. Um, so I guess it, it won't be an incredibly realigning moment like perhaps would have been predicted four years ago. But I think that there will be a large realignment. I think to see what's gone on, right? The Republicans lost the presidency. The Democrats just flipped the Senate. You know, something's going to have to change. Now not having, you know, Donald Trump as the leader of the party, um, you know, that maybe will change things. Maybe it won't. Maybe they'll say, you know, we're going to stick with this, you know, the next two, four years will probably only strengthen the kind of anti-establishment perspective of uh, Trump's core base. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it's all ultimately a political calculation about which way is going to achieve the most votes. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And uh, another thing I wanted to point out for our listeners, uh, if, you, if you tuned into our last episode, we talked a lot about uh, the case California v. Texas, which is another challenge to the Affordable Care Act. I think it's very possible that uh, down the road we see a Democratic Congress reinstate the penalty under the Affordable Care Act for not obtaining health insurance. Uh, that had been something that the, the Republican Senate in 2017 had done away with. Uh, to weaken the Affordable Care Act. So I think that's a, that's a very likely outcome of the Democratic Congress also. Uh, why don't you take us to uh, our next case? What do you think? Sure. Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, let's talk about Andrew Cuomo. You know, he's the governor of our uh, school state. Um, so in late November, um, there was a case before the Supreme Court regarding um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Basically, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, a church, and then two Orthodox uh, synagogues basically came to got together, filed suits against um, Andrew Cuomo for regulations regarding COVID-19. So basically to just give a rundown of how this worked. Cuomo had an executive order that 
basically separated regions into zones, um, red zones, orange zones, yellow zones based on um, viral transmission at that time. So if, if you're in a red zone, um, you know, capacities at religious services were restricted to 10 people. Um, if you're in an orange zone, that capacity is restricted to 25 people. If you're in a yellow zone, it's restricted to 50% capacity of, of the establishment. Um, and so in response to, to these uh, zoned restrictions, um, these three organizations filed suit and they won uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, under the First Amendment, they filed a free exercise um, claim, basically asserting that, well, there's this whole host of essential businesses that Governor Cuomo has deemed essential, um, you know, but we don't fall into that group. And thus we're restricted and those those businesses are not those businesses are not subject to having just 10 or 25 or 50 percent capacity based on what zone they're in they are simply deemed essential and so can operate and so they basically said this is not a neutral and generally applicable law as the precedent holds and they won a 5-4 majority in the court. Um, this is a pretty contentious case, right? It, it really hits at the heart of, um, you know, civil liberties and public health and religious freedom and, and really the core questions that one would think of when talking about, um, you know, judicial interpretation on society. So I think we have a lot to talk about here. Um, Absolutely. You could just give you know, your kind of general take of this, whether you generally think it was a smart opinion, whether you think it was reasonable, but misguided, or whether you just think it's flat out wrong. Yeah, certainly. So I think what we've seen here is one of the um, plain, what we see here is plainly an exercise of the new 6-3 conservative majority. This is uh, one of the effects of uh, Donald Trump that we're going to have to live with for a long time. His three Supreme Court justices heavily, heavily to the conservative side. Um, and, you know, in the past year, there were two cases, one in Nevada and one in California. I believe the California case was South Bay, where incredibly similar, if not indistinguishable questions were brought before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled the other way. So this case, uh, turning uh, or, or overturning Cuomo's regulation uh, is a shift from that previous precedent. Um, to me, you know, this is a tough, this is a really tough case. Uh, First Amendment questions are really hard. They, they invoke some of our core questions about democracy and civil liberties and the role of the state in restricting the right of the people to speak, to uh, publish their own words and what they think and to, to pray how they pray, when they pray and uh, when and, and, and where rather. Um, and this is also an example of the clash between civil liberties and public health guidances that have been ever present in uh, this COVID-19 era. I think that uh, the regulation was reasonable. Um, you know, the South Bay, the California case that had been precedent said that 
as long as um, religious gatherings are treated uh, similarly to secular essential businesses, um, then the regulations permissible. And, you know, I think that was the case here. Um, the Eastern District of New York, the federal district court that heard it, and the Second Circuit that heard the appeal both agreed that the secular uh, essential businesses, such as grocery stores and banks, were distinguishable from religious services. Um, and that to second guess the state's judgment about what should qualify as an essential business was wrong. Uh, I think that that's the correct interpretation. The Constitution entrusts state and local leaders with the welfare of the people. And so this was a regulation crafted uh, with science, medical and epidemiological expertise in mind. Uh, and, you know, I think that that deference should be relied on. Sure. And I mean, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a very reasonable way to view this case. As you said, I, I think this is a very tough case. Um, I, I personally disagree. Um, I think they reached the, the proper conclusion in terms of um, judicial protection. Um, you know, I, I think first to just touch on, on South Bay, um, you know, so the, basically the way this, just to give some context, the way this case was presented is the main opinion is a per curiam opinion, which means it's just through the court without any specific name attached. So the people who write in the majority are saying they sign on to that um, opinion. And then some individuals like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh write concurrences. So, so Gorsuch's response to the South Bay issue by basically saying that, you know, the issue in South Bay was that COVID with, had been with us for two to three months at this point. We knew very, very little. Um, and the specific protection offered, the deference offered is simply because we did not understand the full extent of, you know, what we were dealing with. He calls them, quote, medical and scientific uncertainties. And he would argue that now um, we have a better understanding of this. There's not reason to assume that we should just apply a blank check to executive offices um, in the name of public health when we know so much more about this virus, so much more to the point that, you know, just weeks after this decision is handed down, we have a fully developed vaccine that is 95% effective against the virus. Um, and, and so I think that's an interesting take. And when you kind of look at it that way, beyond South Bay, um, in my personal opinion, there's not all that much precedent. And I think it's pretty clear to me that these rules were applied differently to essential businesses and religious organizations. And so the question is then, is that distinction reasonable, as you were just saying? Um, and, you know, it has to meet the standard of, of strict scrutiny. And, you know, personally, I just think it, it didn't, it doesn't meet that, right? It seems like it's not narrowly tailored um, really at all. Just to give one example, and then I'll let you respond, you know, is, is talking about the size of the place of worship, right? So some of these churches involved or synagogues could seat up to 1,500 people, you know, and so we're going to say, well, you can only have 10 people there if it's in a red zone, when it seems pretty obvious to really anyone that you could easily fit 
a good number of people in there, well distanced, wearing masks. And it would seem to be pretty in line with generally applicable public health guidance during this virus. So it's things like that that kind of make me question, well, is this kind of just a general generalization on these religious communities? Because in some religious communities, there have been outbreaks um, associated with a kind of ignorance towards the science, so to speak. Um, so I guess that's kind of where I fall on it. Yeah, I think that uh, that's obviously a perfectly valid interpretation. Um, and I think it is important to point out that the district court, the circuit court, uh, and Cuomo's lawyers even accepted and, and ceded to the, the Roman Catholic diocese that um, they were an exemplary model of, of right. safety in the community. Uh, and I think that's that's something that we should acknowledge because it's not like they were being uh, entirely irrational. You know, it's it, it's definitely different for different religious groups in New York. Um, but it, in this case, I think that, you know, what you see is the restrictions on churches were less severe than those in comparable secular gatherings. So like theaters, casinos, gyms. And so to me, that meets the, the standard of strict scrutiny, the narrow tailoring of the law. Um, it, it's also plainly clear that, that worship is different than trips to the supermarket. What we know about this disease is that people uh, contract the disease more often or, or easier when you're all coming into a space together, when you're leaving a space together, and when you're mingling. And that is, uh, that is, worship. And that is a hard truth. Um, but I think that's the distinguishing factor from, from uh, gyms or theaters. Um, and then I did want to point out something, you know, Justice Gorsuch, he, he writes in a very, <laughs> very special way that I think is, is very interesting sometimes and others makes me turn my head and, and wince a little bit. And this was one of those times he said that uh, he, he viewed his dissenting colleagues, so the liberals and Justice Ro Chief Justice Roberts, as, quote, cutting the Constitution loose during a pandemic um, and uh, yielding to a, quote, particular judicial impulse to stay out of the way in times of crisis, sheltering in place when the Constitution's under attack. And, you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't think that is how we should undergo these kinds of discussions and hard legal questions and arguments, you know, as, as Chief Justice Roberts pointed out, uh, he doesn't view his dissenting colleagues who are far across the, the ideological spectrum from him as cutting the Constitution loose or sheltering in place while the Constitution is under attack. He just views the matter differently. And after careful study and analysis and reflecting, he said, um, he thought that this was the best way to fulfill his responsibility under the constitution. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, I agree with you that the rhetoric can be a little inflamed at times. Uh, you know, Gorsuch was kind of going on a whole, not, you know, he was kind of going beyond this case. He was kind of, he was referencing a trend of um, kind of abandonment of first amendment freedoms, he calls them. Um, and so, you know, I definitely see what you're saying there with 
you know, they're each individuals and they're making their analysis and they're deciding what they think is right under their charge under the constitution. And I think that's valid. Um, you know, he's just, he personally obviously feels strongly that um, there's a tendency in the judicial community to kind of give too much deference to executive local or state officials who are kind of just doing what they think is going to be the best for the public health situation without giving much attention to potential violations. And he's trying to bring that to light. Um, so you know, I think we've had a good discussion about like whether or not the freedom was actually violated. You know, for some reason, uh, a rather large issue in this case, maybe even more so than if the free exercise clause actually was violated is whether or not there's a need for this ruling, right? So Roberts in his dissent, he states, quote, it may well be that such restrictions violate the free exercise clause. It is not necessary, however, for us to rule on that serious and difficult question at this time. The governor might reinstate the restrictions, but he also might not. That's referring to the fact that during the time of this case's processing, Governor Cuomo actually changed the zones of these particular organizations, um, kind of getting rid of those 10 to 25 people designations. Um, so now I think we should talk about, about where we fall on that. Let's assume for a second, I think it'd be smart of us to assume that this restriction violated the free exercise clause in some respect. I think if we assume that, then we can have a good conversation about whether or not it's necessary at this moment to rule on it. So what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I, it's definitely a, a pertinent issue is the use of the, the shadow docket and injunctions by the Supreme Court. So go ahead, lay it out. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, that I, I, you know, I also agree with the majority here that there is a need in the moment to provide the religious organizations relief if it's found that the free exercise clause has been violated, um, you know, as the per curiam opinion states, the loss of First Amendment freedoms for even minimal periods of time unquestionably constitutes irreparable harm, irreparable injury. So to me, it's like he changed the rule, but it's not as if he said, okay, this rule is unfair to these communities. I'm getting rid of it. He simply changed the current provision of the rule. The rule still is that he could, at any given hour of the day, change those designations and revert back to the prior rule, which would force the religious organizations to take another two weeks to litigate the suit while currently being injured in this constitutional manner. So I think that Personally, if you're going to find that these restrictions violate the free exercise clause, you have to say right now that they're unconstitutional because in effect, they still exist. They just aren't currently in the same state they were when they originally approached the court, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm gonna, I disagree. I think that, you know, I, this is just a, Another example of, of um, Gorsuch, Alito, and, and that the conservative block of the court 
their use of the shadow docket to rule on issues that haven't been granted certiorari. Um, in this case, this is an order for an injunction. And what the Supreme Court precedent says, uh, I think it's a case, uh, Niken versus Holder, is that an injunction is an extraordinary remedy. And that when you seek an injunction before full argument, and when it goes contrary to the lower court's determination, you have to show uh, why the extraordinary remedy of an injunction is warranted. And so in this case, you know, I think you're right that he could put it back in place when he wanted, but it's not in place. And the rule in my mind was crafted um, with an eye towards and dedication to uh, medical science and epidemiology. Um, and, and so you have to make a showing for why you need this extraordinary remedy. So the rule's not in place. I think it's a, it's a warranted deference to the governor's authority uh, to protect his citizens. And if you're not going to bring it to full argument, you have a higher standard uh, or a higher showing that you have to make. And, you know, with the extraordinary death and disease that we've seen COVID um, create in our country, I think we're now well beyond 350,000 dead Americans. Uh, I think limiting the, the number of people in a house of worship irrespective of mask wearing and social distancing is a proper exercise of, of, of state authority. And that is not warranted for an injunction when both courts below the Supreme Court agreed. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely see what you're saying in that this whole, you know, it's an emergency relief of something that isn't currently present um, and we haven't gone through the full range of arguments, you know, how can we grant this injunction? I, you know, I get that argument. It, it does make a lot of sense. I think that, you know, strict scrutiny, in my opinion, gives that kind of uh, presumption to the religious organizations. And it's not as if the court is just blindly going about this notion of an injunction. There's, you know, three standards that they need to meet. Um, and in those five justices' opinions, you know, they think that it is eminently clear that these restrictions have violated rights granted in the First Amendment and so in that way, it's this kind of like presupposition that there is a violation and there is an injury. And so at that point, it's like, in my opinion, New York should go back and more narrowly tailor this approach if they want to use it. It's in my opinion, even if there's a public health crisis, the presumption when we're dealing with restricting specifically religious organizations and, and not, not saying religious organizations and a bunch of other organizations, we're talking places of worship specifically. 
they need to take their time and really tailor that. They should acknowledge that some houses of worship can fit a thousand people. And so maybe we need to be more lenient in that specific sense because those congregations with a thousand people relying on the ability to go and practice their religion, we need to more narrowly tailor that to balance their rights to exercise religion and our public health interests. So I just think there's a lot of balancing that could be done on New York's part that wasn't done. And it was kind of just a, a blind kind of ruling on their part without much consideration for how this would affect people who view their most essential function, in some cases, even more so than the desire for food or alcohol, you know, liquor stores are deemed essential, um, that ability to go on the Sabbath and worship. And I think that that should be respected more so in policy than it is. Um, but I think there's obviously arguments to go around the table. And I think you make a, a great one, especially about the whole shadow docket concept. Well, you definitely brought up a lot of great points. This is a, certainly a hard question, especially when you're in the middle of a global pandemic and we're trying to balance the, the need of the people to stay safe versus the right of the people to worship uh, in their houses of prayer. And um, I think that's all of the time we have for today. Thanks for coming on today, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me again. It was a pleasure discussing these issues. Yeah, of course. And, and thank you to all of you out there who tuned in today. Um, we hope to be back in another two weeks with, an, with a third episode of the second season for you. And uh, we hope you're all staying safe and having a great start to your 2021. Uh, thank you all for joining us.